Well, hello, kinda Christian family. Before we start today's episode, I do come bearing a little bit of exciting news. Not exciting in that you're getting a free car, but still newsworthy of mentioning by pretty much any reputable press outlet in America. Today, after searching the galaxies and scouring the nations for a partner worthy of joining us on our quest for truth, we are proud to have selected the Dwell app. Now, if you're listening to this show, you ostensibly have some interest in the Bible, and you should. It's the best-selling book of all time. It's also long, sometimes very difficult to get into, and well, my version has very tiny letters, which until I've had my second cup of coffee in the morning, I'm not quite ready to get into. The Dwell app basically lets you have the Bible read aloud to you by your choice of some of the most amazing voices, and it's set to incredibly contemplative music. So it basically renders the entire Bible experience that much more profound. You hear it from our guests all the time. The Bible has changed their life. So why not give it a shot? Go to dwellapp.io slash kinda hyphen Christian and try the app out for free today. Again, that's dwellapp.io slash kinda hyphen Christian. Oh man, folks, welcome back to Kinda Christian. If you feel any exasperation in my tone today, it is not because I'm sitting with a man more extroverted and almost as good looking as me. It's rather the spiritual warfare and technological issues we've overcome to be here today. So anyways, we don't have time for my normal superfluous introductions. I'm just going to say, if you haven't subscribed on YouTube and all the other platforms, Apple, Spotify, everything, do so now lest you face judgment. But since we're on a shortened schedule today, I'm going to give an abbreviated introduction. My next guest needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. He is the muse of Manhattan, the Baron of Bonhoeffer. He has put the extra in extrovert. And in fact, he is the second smartest person on this call. He will have you LOLing at all his JKs. He is an incredible best-selling author, a syndicated talk show host, listened to by millions, whereas I'm listened to by probably dozens. Uh, I would like to welcome Eric Metaxas to the program today. I, I'm honored to be introduced that way. I'm, I'm honored to the point of almost being embarrassed. Not quite, but almost. Very close. Uh, Ryan, now, it, this is video. Are people going to be able to see how I'm uh, dressed and how you, what you look like? They are. They will, they will think that you're in a full outfit, though we both know that you are probably wearing SpongeBob pajamas. Um, I'm at the from beach, the waist bro. I'm at the beach. It's all virtual. The tie, the jacket, it's all virtual, man. Oh, man. Well, let's just jump into it. Obviously, we both face people. You don't know what we went through to get through today. So we are going to have to think through our sponsors after this. But um, I uh, first things first, Eric, the most important question on any show where they're processing the deeper questions of life. I like to give all guests uh, a space to process. But how honored are you to be here today? You know what? It is uh, it's a cliche to say it, but words uh, are insufficient. I don't know what medium other than language to employ. Uh, but uh, since I can only employ language, I, I guess I would say there's just no way for me to communicate uh, the Himalayan level. Uh, even even if the Himalayas themselves uh, could be shown uh, visually, that wouldn't do it justice. Uh, the scale is just something that's, it's not terrestrial. Uh, we'd have to go to uh, another galaxy. I, I think that's that's as close as I can get with clumsy words mm. you know i uh, actually what's that we can we can get the himalayas on there okay cool my producer informed me we'll be able to crop in the himalayan image for yeah, you later but remember so. that, that 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 just won't do it that's right and also we also are offering extra bonus points to mr metaxas for integration of the word terrestrial and himalayan into a uh, introduction so well done sir well uh, i hear you know you've been in the news a lot you get all sorts of great books i every time i think i'm done reading your books uh, I the, another one comes out. And so you're just going to have to covenant to come back and talk again, because I actually just read your Luther biography. I was in a Bible study uh, or I don't say Bible. No, it was more of a it was a debate club that was reading biblical topics. And several of my uh, friends were like, let's all study Martin Luther. And I was like, oh, oh, I know a guy who wrote a book on this. And I was the only one who read it. They all skipped out on the reading. And I came back and I was armed with information. I was like, guys, you I have to out. say, I'm extremely proud of that book. Uh, it came out on the 500th anniversary uh, of the beginning of the Reformation, so 2017. But 
I actually had more fun writing that book than any book. Uh, there's something about the character of Luther. But I'm also proud, really, really proud, that I was able to correct a number of misconceptions about him. It's a weird thing when you're not an historian, you haven't spent your life doing this, but you're doing this research and you find a number of things that everyone has gotten wrong. And you think, how could I be so blessed as to have stumbled on the right thing? And then the excitement of correcting it and saying that forever now people will know what really happened and what didn't happen. So that was that was kind of fun. So, yeah, I, I think it's more fun to read than any other Luther biography. I can at least say that. No, it's I, I'll say this. I as being a, a, I would never call myself a religious scholar, but I just was you know we'll have to save this for another podcast. But I was blown away at my just sheer just ignorance of someone who, regardless of what side of the aisle in that debate and your belief in Luther's right. role in history, I found that book fascinating and someone who is one of the most influential, for better, for worse, depending on who you ask, uh, folks in the world. Right. I mean, it was just, it was the world seismically shifted during yeah. that period, and it was fascinating. Well, it's funny. You said you were embarrassed by your ignorance. I was also embarrassed by your ignorance. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> That's right. Well, my ignorance is the most viral thing in this pandemic, so I'm just trying <laughs> to spread it to one group or another. But, you know, it wasn't enough. You you did it with Bonhoeffer. You did it with Seven Men, Seven Women, William Wilberforce, and Amazing Grace. I know that I'm probably the subject of your next book, uh, but let's get down to, you have a new book coming out. Uh, yeah. Is Atheism Dead? Since this is a video podcast I can show you, I literally got copies like last night. Wow. So here it is. There's the book. So why don't you just save us all from having to read this uh, and answer the question, is atheism dead? Uh, yes and no. Okay. Ah, good antsy, good marketer. We're going to have to read to find out, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Is atheism dead? I mean, there's no answer because the question you, the question is, how are you asking the question? Intellectually, yes, it is dead. But many things that we know are mistaken are still believed by people. I think I just think that if you want to be intellectually honest, after you read what's in this book, enough information has come out in the last few decades, which I put in the book, that absolutely makes it impossible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. You can be an agnostic. You can say, I hate Christianity. I got questions. I got, you can say anything you want, but to say, I know there's no God becomes absurd in this day and age because enough science has come out. And I deal with that in the first third of the book that it just ends the conversation. And I mean that I'm not, you know, I, I can't take much credit except I uh, took in the information and I said, somebody needs to tell the world, what science has discovered over the last number of decades, which makes it pretty clear, you know? So, yeah. No, that's so I actually, um, you, you robbed normally I, I, you know, your books, obviously I put on par with the other greats, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Seuss and my curious George uh, tomes, but Thank I spent you. the last several mornings reading, uh, is atheism dead? Is atheism dead? And one in Metaxas, I'm astounded at the amount of incredible information that you, amassed in there. And I actually, I took some notes and I'd love to get in, obviously people, you're gonna have to read this book because there's so much really just honestly great conversation starter. And I, I love so many of the points you brought up in that. And you deal with the fine tuning argument oh. in the beginning of the book quite a bit. Yeah. And I would love to pick your brain a little bit on that because yeah. I, um, I've actually been a big fan of watching uh, these debates with William Lane Craig or Sean Carroll and, and Sam Harris and uh, and even if I agree, disagree on, with some of them, I appreciate just having the conversation. So with the fine-tuning argument, and you kind of hinted on this in your other excellent book, Miracles, I, I've levied too much praise on you, uh, the, the, we, you point out the incredible, just minute tuning that has to happen, just the, the sheer odds being against what has happened with everything from the size of our planet, the no, proximity is, of the look, moon. It is, it's, it is incomprehensible. It is the kind of thing that when you begin to take it in, you're paralyzed. It's like, it, it just doesn't seem possible. But this, Ryan, is what science is telling us. This is not some Christians. This is science. Science tells us things today that it couldn't tell us even 40, 30 years ago. The size of the Earth, nobody would think, if you watch Star Trek, you watch all the science fiction, that any planet can be any size and life can be on it. No. According to recent science, we understand the magnetosphere of a planet 
uh, is what uh, enables it to have an atmosphere. I'm not going to go into it. I go into it in the book. But the bottom line is, if our planet were slightly smaller, just a little bit, our magnetosphere would not be strong enough uh, and we would lose our atmosphere. Like Mars lost its atmosphere. You can't live on, can't breathe on Mars. If we were a little bit bigger, we would have too much gravity. So we would pull down uh, ammonia, whatever it is that we wouldn't be able to breathe. We would. I mean, it gets freaky. That's just the size of the planet. It goes on and on and on. There are so many things that are just so. The more we learn from science, the more utterly clear it becomes that there is not a ghost of a chance that all of this just emerged perfectly. The more you know, the more freaked out you will be. And I think that, I, I look, I didn't put everything in the book, but I put enough in there so that people can see we are not getting the facts. The facts are freaky. They point to the existence of God so clearly that I really, def I defy anyone who, unless you go to some preposterous multiverse theory, you know, people are just clutching at straws because they don't want to believe there's a creator God. Yeah. But honest atheists like uh, uh, the, the, the one who comes to the top of the list, Anthony Flew, I mean, the, the man was an atheist for decades, writing textbooks on atheism. He came to believe because of the fine-tuned argument and a number of other similar things, there's just no way there isn't an intelligence behind where well, and, we... And you point out, too, that I, I thought it was fascinating that uh, you, you mentioned that anecdote that Christopher Hitchens, when asked to make a defense for the other side, yeah, uh, Hitchens being a, the most prominent atheist of you know one of them in his time, said that the fine-tuning argument. Well, one thing I wanted to ask, because I, on one sense, I it makes total total sense to me that you look at just the... Just even the equations, you, you do a fa fascinating history about Einstein in there as well. And you look at the fact that any there, there are any constants, any equations in order at all is is mind bending. But one thing I do appreciate, Sean Carroll pointed this out in a debate, and he said that fine tuning actually, kind of paraphrasing, fine tuning could be a perspective. So in one sense, if we're viewing the earth as the center of the universe, right. it seems inordinately fine tuned because life we're here. But then you look at just the billions and trillions of galaxies and, and you see so far what appears to be a bunch of empty space. How do we reconcile fine tuning for life with the fact that we life is just so absent seemingly around the, the universe right that, now? That's the exact, that's the whole point. In other words, life is something that flat out shouldn't exist. The more you understand what it takes to create an environment in which life could exist, the more you understand what it takes for life to exist in the right environment, the more you understand this shouldn't happen. We are, to say anomalies is not strong enough. We are freakish. I mean, yeah, it doesn't make sense that there is any life anywhere. And it does make sense that if there's any life anywhere, like here, clearly an intelligent being beyond anything we could dream created it. But again, that's what science leads us to. And we've been we've been told science is at odds with faith. That is not only not true, uh, the opposite is true. Uh, I talk actually in the book about how it was Christian faith that led to modern science. Now you think, why aren't we learning that in schools? Why do people buy into this canard, this preposterous uh, lie that somehow faith and science are at odds. It, it's, it's not only is it not true, but if it weren't for Christian faith, we wouldn't have science. I didn't learn that until I was writing this book and I did the research and I was astounded because you discover this thing and then you think, this is true, this has always been true, but I've been hearing the opposite my entire life. So part of the reason I wrote this book, Is Atheism Dead?, is to say, we need to look at this, we need to recalibrate because the whole culture has bought this lie and for some reason that's been going on forever we need to we need to recalibrate it's simply not true yeah so actually i, I that's something i'd love to dig in with you because you do such a, a great job of pointing out all these notable figures in history and i found it particularly fascinating that einstein seem seemed to be resisting uh, his own discovery about what we would look back and go, oh, there is this fine tuning, and he had to actually try and put something in the way of that. And so, uh, do you is it really if we just simplify it down? Is it one? Is it? Do you think it's groupthink? Is it just? Is there a is there a pressure that if you go against the grain, you're just automatically assumed to be 
a second-rate scientist if you buy into this. Always. It's not just true in science. It's true in every single field. It's true today in our culture. It's the way human beings work. We're sinners. Uh, and so Einstein, this is actually funny because you realize Einstein was not that famous when he discovered what he discovered. He wasn't the Einstein we think of today. So he discovers in his equations starting in 1911 and in the years following, it looks really clear that the universe had a beginning. It looks really clear like the universe emerged from a single point that it was created at some point in time. Now, Einstein, living in a world that's post-Darwin, science has already bought the lie that there's this biblical view of creation and then there's science. So when science in his equations points to the idea that yes, the universe didn't exist forever, yes, the universe was created, he knows it's going to be embarrassing for him. He doesn't want, he says this smacks too much of religion, a beginning creation. He couldn't handle it. Now, what's funny is if he'd been more secure, if he'd been the Einstein of, you know, 1930 or 1940 or 1950, he, he wouldn't have been, uh, I think, uh, cowed into disowning this idea, but he was still young. And so he says, no, this is untenable. So I'm going to bake in, you know, he calls it the fudge factor uh, so that his equations wouldn't point to this. So he does this. But then other people let him know, oh, by the way, uh, Albert Einstein, you're wrong. Your, your equations are quite correct. You don't need the fudge <laughs> factor. So eventually he has all this egg on his face and he's humiliated. In 1929, uh, you have, I'm trying to think, Georges Lemaitre and uh, Friedman, the Russian Jew, and then... Uh, who was it? Uh, uh, Hubble. They all converge and say, no, this is so he has to finally say I was wrong. Uh, and my cosmological constant, this fudge factor that I baked in is the greatest stupidity of my life. It's a famous quote. And it's because and I mean, this really gets to the core of this whole book, the whole thesis. People are afraid to speak truth. Even Einstein was afraid to speak scientific, mathematical truth. He knew it was right, but he said, it, it's going to be embarrassing, so I'm just going to cover it up. Yeah. Now, if Einstein's willing to do that, why do we expect anybody you know to say the truth unless they really have real courage uh, or believe God is with them? People are always kind of looking around to think what others think. That's the history of humanity, and that's definitely the history of science uh, in the last, you know, 150, 200 years. So it's really wild to think that science has now brought us to a place where we can see this and where we have to we have to recalibrate. There's just no doubt about it. To be fair, too, because I, I really I, I try to point out both sides here. This group thing does go both ways because there was also a time, and I appreciate you mentioning the church was responsible for so much scientific advancement, and that gets left out a lot, but. Also, there was a time where if you had a profound, the church has also been on the incorrect side of science and punished people who, uh, and in general, who disagreed with that, right? So it, it goes both ways. This group think does go well, both well, ways. Well, that's right? the whole point is whoever has power, right? I mean, this is just human nature, right? We know that uh, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. We are sinners. So the moment you get power, it's very difficult not to want to wield that power uh, for certain ends. So the the church in Galileo's time, for example, had that power. Now, as I write in the book, there's a whole chapter, I call it the founding myth of atheism. It's not true, really, that the church squashed science in Galileo's time. It's way more complicated. But what's interesting is whoever has power does the squashing. Today, it's the secular scientific establishment that says, like Einstein feared these people in 1911, and they still exist. And they say, if you come up with anything pointing to God or whatever, that's out of bounds. We don't want to hear it. And they're, they'll, they'll crush you. And so I think how crazy and how ironic that we have painted this, this legend of, you know, the church has power and it squashes the brave scientists when the reality is today, it is the secular establishment that has power and it squashes voices of faith. It's just human beings wielding power, whether they have it as part of some gigantic corrupt church or whether they have it as part of some gigantic uh, scientific uh, establishment, doesn't really matter. That's what people do. And the pendulum has swung so that today we have to speak truth to power. And the power is 
the secular scientific and atheistic materialistic establishment. They yeah. uh, have tried to sell us a bill of goods and now the facts are in and we can say, just like Galileo said, just just look through the telescope. If you dare to look at the facts, you're going to see you're getting it wrong. So it's it's interesting. If, on one sense, you know, I could see uh, you know, this. I love watching these debates and cosmological. And at some level, you just uh, you you throw your hands up and go, look, this is science can't prove without a doubt God. On the other hand, uh, it sounds like what you're saying is that it's as of now, there is actually a lot more reason to believe in in a God created universe. And also that you are and I know you do this with your Socrates in the city, but uh, you are interact with and know of, and basically you're saying that there are a lot of very intelligent people who subscribe to uh, a God-created universe as opposed to multiverse. Um, well, you know, just... there's a couple of things I have to say. First of all, in the book, I mean, I don't, I don't think you can, you know, prove right. Jesus is Lord or the Bible is true, but I do think you can prove that atheism is utterly intellectually untenable. It's like talking about the flat earth. If you want to believe it, go ahead. But anybody who cares to look at the facts at this point, it's a slam dunk. It's open and shut. That's the case with atheism. There is indubitably a uh, an intelligent creator of the universe. Now, if you don't want to say it's the God of the Bible, that's fine. We can discuss it. But to say there is no God mm-hmm. intellectually, you cannot any longer say that. Uh, that to me is proved in the science that we've had to deal with. Uh, but it's also proved at the end of the book, I have a number of um, chapters about atheism itself and how the new atheists in particular, they have really shrunk from looking at the facts. They have taken cheap pot shots at people of faith. They don't really do the homework. They just kind of want to sell books or kind of want to say, I hate God and let's have some fun making fun of people of faith. But they're very intellectually sloppy. And those atheists who did the work of looking into the abyss, what would it mean if there's no God in the universe? Those atheists almost all uh, are either deeply troubled by what they see, they're not happy about the idea there's no God, or to my shock, to my huge shock, and to the shock of many readers when they read the book, two of the greatest atheists of the 20th century, maybe the two most famous atheists, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus, both of them at the end of their lives, couldn't handle what they were seeing, and they both eventually came to Christian faith. Now that is totally unknown. So when I discovered it, I said, this is gonna be like a headline in, in this book. This is big news. Uh, people need to know that, you know, the guy who wrote No Exit, the guy, all, all, all these guys, they looked as hard as anyone can look at the idea of a world without God. They came out the other side. The people who don't look that hard, like Christopher Hitchens and, and Richard Dawkins, they kind of pretend like, well, we all know faith and and uh, and science are at odds. And, and they don't know anything. They haven't done the homework. The people who did the homework uh, came out on the side of faith, which is, yeah. to me, huge news. And it's weird that most of us don't know that. I mean, I didn't know it till I wrote the book. And I thought to myself, the world looks like a different place when you realize that Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus, they both came to faith. What does that say about atheism? When the two geniuses of, of that worldview come out the other side, uh, we need to at least know that that's what happened. And in the book, I write about that because I want people to know those two guys, famous, the most famous genius atheists of the 20th century, they both came out into Christian faith, not just faith uh, in some being like Anthony Flew believed in, but uh, in the actual, you know, a, a, as Christians. And that's probably important to denote, too, is that, you know, faith is a spectrum for a lot of, so, you, you know, how do you, it's always a question, of, I've had a question of, you know, how would you even begin to categorize who is where on the spectrum? Because, you know, there's a difference between, do you believe in a, a God that speaks personally, the Christian God that interacts with, be, you know, humans individually? Do you believe in the a, a theistic sort of, you know, uh, creator who just turned it all on and then walked away. I think those are, you know, it's, if you broaden the tent a little bit, I I imagine you might find a lot more people. I think what people think is there is this, how many scientists or subscribers of the Christian faith, they, they might mean something that's personally, you know, that's exactly the point is that I set the bar low in this book. All I do is show that to say there's no God is absurd. It is now absurd. So if you want to say you're an agnostic, fine. 
we can have a conversation. But I don't think anybody can say seriously that they're an atheist. That, that It becomes mere willfulness uh, and peak. Uh, you cannot really look at the arguments uh, and say that there's a, uh, that I know that there's no God. It's absurd. You can't do that anymore. So I'm always in wrestling with this too, because obviously I have, uh, there's so many people across different faiths and spectrums and just wonderful people. And uh, and the, the main issue I have had with trying to get through this with atheism is, and I'm going to ask you to play devil's advocate. Is there a way, and I think Sam Harris tried to in the moral landscape, but I didn't personally find it as convincing, but is there a way to, we all as humans seem to live our lives as if there are absolute moral truths and we love faith, you know, faith and charity and hope and altruism, all these things that are not provable in a lab uh, that we, we live, we live our life on faith essentially. And I have not found a framework outside of theism or theistic where it's divine revelation where you could get to absolute morality uh, and why we should be why humans should have rights why we should be nice to each other um, because it seems like if we just evolve that way then whatever you know but, they see, that, but that's actually at the end of the book I deal with that it is just from a philosophical point of view atheism is untenable if you understand the ramifications of a world without God, as Camus did and Sartre did, uh, as Woody Allen does, uh, you, you're not happy about it. You realize that if there's no God, it's not just like, hey, I can have great fun and nobody to judge me. No, that's really shallow. That's the Christopher Hitchens, uh, Richard Dawkins atheism. A serious atheist says, this is ghastly because if there's no God, in the end, I realize there's no meaning there's no good, there's no evil. There is no reason for me to do anything for someone else. There's no reason for me to talk about love. It's just chemicals. We're just right. uh, creatures that were thrown up by the random churning of the universe. It is so bleak that it's horrifying. And so I think that there's no question about what I'm saying. And, and people who don't want to say that, see that it's a free country. People can't be forced. But I think we have to be honest that that view is no longer tenable. You cannot have morality without God. You can be moral without God, but you can't pretend that you're being intellectually, uh, that, you're, that you're being logical uh, in how you behave. Your feelings uh, may come into it, but I actually would argue that your desire to, to, to argue uh, about meaning and about what's true and, and any of that stuff, your desire to debate and to, to, to beat somebody in a debate, even if you're an atheist, proves that you believe in meaning, that you believe in truth. So there's a tremendous irony here. We're all created in God's image, whether we admit it or not, and we're all acting those things out. So to be a consistent atheist, you would have to just say, I'm, you know, I'm either going to do whatever I like, kill people, have pleasure, but who cares about truth um, or, or just kill yourself? I mean, it really comes down to that. And if you don't see that, you're, you're living in, you know, what Sartre calls bad faith, which is another story. And also, is it, is it fair to say, too, that if there is no nothing beyond our biological sort of natural naturalism perspective, I wonder, and I, I know someone else, I, I think it was maybe Alvin Plantinga made this, this, this claim, but that if everything is just natural and biological, how could we even trust our faculties to begin with? Because uh, wouldn't they all be pointing us towards just replication of the species? Well, exactly. In, in other words, uh, if there is no order to the universe that God has put into it and everything's random and accidental, yeah, why would I ever trust my brain to lead me toward what is true? Why would I even believe there is such a thing as true? The whole universe could be skewed. It could be like a, like a you know, warped pool stick. Uh, there's no way uh, for me to know what is true, what is straight. Mm. Uh, why would I think that there would be such a thing as order and clarity and truth and good and evil and whatever? But the new atheists, as I point out in the, in the last chapters of the book, they use that terminology over and over and over again as though everybody assumes it. But you have to say, wait a second, where are you getting this from? And they, they have no answer. I mean, they, they, how does how does the and I'm generally asking because I, you know, you open the book with a quote about um, 
the secular atheistic regimes, uh, not from you, from, I'm forgetting the name. Um, yeah, and it was a chilling quote about the, the cause of all those, uh, the bloodshed was that man forgot God. But is there any way to explain, because I, I always found this a very chilling fact, but from the the communist revolutions and everything from the, these, these mass, you know, these regimes that were committed mass atrocities, they were almost all secular atheistic institutions, right? There's no, there's no question about it. I mean, basically, I mean, what's funny to me is that you really get, as history moves along, things become clearer and clearer. And you basically have a choice between American style freedom that says, uh, you are free to believe whatever you like. Uh, everybody is sacred and we're not going to force anybody to, to violate their conscience. And, you know, that, that's this amazing thing that the American founders put into our, our Constitution and that we've been living out for almost two and a half centuries with a lot of issues and problems and flaws. But it's an amazing idea. And the opposite of that, uh, which doesn't include God, also is antithetical to freedom. It means that the state can decide what is true, what is false. And by the way, if the state can do that, the state can decide that you are a nothing and that we can crush you if you don't do what we want you to do. And why wouldn't they? Because there's no God and we can do what we like. So you find that atheistic regimes are just, you can't even say they're just harmful. They're not as good as, as free countries where most people believe in God. They end up becoming wicked, cruel, demonic. Uh, it begs the question, can you, can he, you know, I would think if even if you don't support faith, you would want to have rights that are conferred to you by God, because then a government or whatever circumstances can't strip you of them. Right. But if I, I've tried to wrap my mind around this, you can't get rights from nature because, you know, I look at how nature treats each other. And that's I don't want that. You're being and, logical, Ryan. You're being logical. This is what I find so funny. It's like it's not that complicated. Yeah. But there are people that they just bat this stuff away. They just kind of they use their will in a sense to just to 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 demand a different view yeah. of things, but it doesn't hold up. Yeah, and if, if government gave you rights, they can take them away. Uh, and that's, uh, that's a chilling factor. Now, that's a um, very depressing note we're on. So why don't we find a little... Luckily, you don't just tackle in the book that there's problems with atheism, but also no. that there are reasons to believe in an alternative narrative and oh, that there's, no there's lots of historical. And yeah. what I found interesting, too, is you have some really fascinating... Uh, research compiled uh, of the latest findings in archaeology oh, and man. some of the New Testament stuff. So walk me through some of the stuff that yeah. you were just blown away by. Oh, yeah. No, it is, it is so crazy. I mean, you know, in the in the science stuff, I think it just flat out proves that science now tells us there is a God. You want to talk about who that God is, whatever, fine. But you cannot say there's no God. But the biblical archaeology, I mean... Again, the reason I wrote the book is I thought people need to know this. This is crazy that we live in a world where most people, including most devout Christians, don't know this. And so they're walking along as though, well, this is my philosophy. I don't know who's to say. <laughs> it, the evidence is, it, it is now freakish. It's not just like, well, there's, there's evidence. It is astonishing evidence. So from science, yeah, but biblical archaeology, I couldn't believe how many things have corroborated the Bible Starting in, you know, the 1840s, 1846, they find this steel uh, in, in Assyria, uh, what was Assyria, northern Iraq. From then, 170 years ago, it continues. They keep finding things in the sands of the Middle East, and they're astonishing. But the most freaky thing happened recently. In fact, literally two weeks ago, even less, an article appeared in the one of the premier scientific journals of our time. It is Nature. Uh, it's a biblical journal. They published a tremendously extensive peer-reviewed paper. 21 scientists poured their research and years of work into this. Uh, and it has to do with the discovery of what we now know is biblical Sodom, the place that we thought mythically was destroyed 1700 BC. Who's to, who's to say what really happened? It's, you know, back in the, the mists of prehistory. Um, someone that I've gotten to know, I just had him on my radio program, um, he had a sense in 1996 that if the place existed, if Sodom existed and could be found, it had to be where no one had looked yet. Long story short, he looks there, he finds 
what is a number one candidate for what could be Sodom. He starts to excavate. He gets down to the 1700 BC level and finds a layer of soot, ash, whatever you call it, that is an average of five feet deep that covers this vast city. It was the largest city in the area. I mean, <laughs> for like thousand years. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing. So he finds this and he realizes that this is, this is an astonishing thing because if you know how things are destroyed, how cities are destroyed, what they found looked unlike anything they'd ever seen. And there's uh, no volcano. Is there's no volcano there no, or anything? No volcano. There's no. There's none of that stuff. So they find five feet of ash, and or soot. And then there's two things. Right above the layer of 1700 BC, this is a city that had existed for millennia before 1700 BC. So wow. going back into the fourth century BC, this was a vast city. It exists as a city for, you know, 2,300 years as a vast city. I mean, sorry, 2,300 years. This is incomprehensible to us. For millennia, it exists as a city. It's that kind of real estate where anybody who's going to settle in that part of the world, this is the spot. So they find 1700 BC, this destruction layer. Right above it, there's nothing. For 700 years, they find no human civilization. Now, this is unprecedented. This is like the premier... Uh, real estate in the area for, you know, hundreds of miles. It's been occupied forever, but for 700 years after this destruction, nothing. And in the destruction matrix, well, there are two things they find in the destruction matrix. First of all, it's churned in such a way no one's ever seen anything like it. It makes no sense. It's not an earthquake. It's not. Now, by the way, these are scientists, secular scientists who determine this. Okay. Yeah, nature is not a, obviously a religious. No, no, no. On the contrary. I mean, this is as scientific as it gets. So, They've never seen anything like it. There's bits of bone. There's melted bits of brick. There's all kinds of stuff. They've simply never seen anything like this. What is this? So then, well, I shouldn't say so then. The first day that Stephen Collins, who discovered this spot, sees this layer of soot, they find a piece of 1700, sorry, 17, yeah, 1700 BC pottery. He knows. He's a ceramic typologist. He knows instantly what it is, what time it's from, whatever. So this is the era, right? He looks at it. He flips it over, and it's got this green glassy glaze. And he says, this technology didn't exist for 2,400 years. Uh, it didn't exist in 1700 BC. It began to exist in the 8th century. The Muslims invented this kind of stuff. How can I find uh, this glassy glaze on something that's from 1700 BC? They take it to a lab in New Mexico. And I mean, these things have now been, been looked at by I mean, many labs. But when he first finds it, he takes it to this lab and the, the folks in the lab say, this pottery is itself melted. It had to be exposed to something like 4,000 degrees for like 25 seconds. Uh, and the only thing that could do that is what they call a cosmic airburst event, which is like a meteor coming 35,000 okay. miles an hour into the so atmosphere. A space, rock, a space rock had to hit it. Okay, so that happened in 1908 in Tunguska, Siberia. That's why today we have some metrics where we can say, okay, it looks like what happened in 1908 in Siberia that flattened 80 million trees in an instant. That must have happened here in 1700 BC. So the scientists determined that this was like an atomic bomb. It was the equivalent of a thousand Hiroshima bombs, at least, at least, oh maybe twice as many. It, it's just incomprehensible. So in the Nature article... Not only, you know, do, do I write about this in my book, in, uh, there's a chapter in Is Atheism Dead where I go into this, but the recent article in Nature on an extremely, you don't want to reread it because it's extremely technical, but they come to the same conclusion at the end of this intensely technical, detailed scientific analysis. They say, hard not to believe that, you know, the stories of Sodom did not emerge from here because everything lines up. So, so you're, you're kind of left with that same dilemma of when researchers talk about Exodus and how, you know, it's entire like an eclipse may have blocked out the sun. And I, I almost feel it's uh, it's it's you just you get both options. So what the secular scientists could say, well, yeah, the this space rock collision could have inspired the biblical story or the the Christian could say, well, uh, or guess what? The Bible accurately depicted this. And now science is confirming it. So either one of those is a tenable position. On well, this one. I think. 
I think there's no way, obviously, in a scientific journal uh, of the prestige of, of nature, you know, that they can go past where they went. But where they went is incredibly far. I mean, it's it's very dramatic. And is this recent? If people want to go look this up, how recent is the Nature Journal article? This was September 20th, 2021. This is what? This is nine days ago. Nine days ago. Wow. So this is breaking ten, ten, news, essentially. <laughs> ten, ten days ago. It came out from when we're talking, and I just wrote an article that's going to be in Newsweek on Monday, kind of summing this up. But I, I cannot tell you. I mean, the more you know, the more astonishing it is. And by the way, there's no way the, the accuracy of the Bible is what is what is kind of freaky. Um, the uh, the the man who discovered biblical Sodom, this archaeologist Stephen Collins, he found the spot by reading exactly what it says in Genesis and saying, if this place is real and if it could ever be discovered, it has to be here because that's what Genesis says. So the scientists doing all this research and, and all this stuff, they, they wouldn't have any stuff to do research on if, if Stephen Collins had not used Genesis as a guidebook to find this spot. So you, is, you Collins a, is Collins a person of faith? He is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's but was fact, he, that's before he did said. this. Before he did this, was he a person of faith or did he? Uh, did this no, he, he was a person of faith. Okay. Yeah. And it was it was because of his belief that the Bible is true, that he said where others had said Sodom and Gomorrah probably were. It, it didn't make sense. He was leading a tour. I mean, I, I write about this in the book. He was leading a tour uh, of the Holy Land. And one of the things was to say they, they say Sodom and Gomorrah probably around this area. And he just said, you know, it doesn't make sense. And he started digging into it and he says no pun no, intended gotta be here and son of a gun it was exactly where the bible says it is and you think well is that just coincidence i mean it gets pretty heavy it's pretty and cool that's stuff. not and i obviously i i know we have we have to kind of go lightning around this because we got to get you out on a time to you know less important podcast but uh that's a fascinating anecdote. You have another one in there I found interesting about Jesus's childbirth uh home oh, this this i almost don't want to talk about this because this sounds Give us a so teaser, though, because it's, it screams of, um, I don't want to call cover-up, but it's just, it is interesting that along the historical records, these things get omitted. This is, but this is what I love. And I, you, you know, I think when you're young, at least when I was younger, I just thought that everything that's true comes out and everything works. And then you start realizing, no, we're living in a fallen world. And a lot of times the truth is hidden forever. And you don't discover it till some guy stumbles on something, or whatever. Well, I was doing the research for this book. I'd never heard of some of this stuff. And as I'm doing the research, I thought, you know, I want to write about biblical Sodom and I want to write, write about some other major archaeological finds. So I want to kind of give my reader, you know, kind of a soup to nuts primer on the basics of biblical archaeology because it's incredibly impressive. I mean, the stuff they have found, they found the home in Capernaum of Peter. Now, again, that sounds crazy. It's not. It's a, is it an Airbnb now, by the way? Yes, it is. Okay. Uh, no, it's it's. Um, <laughs> but what's what's funny is that we can't imagine that these places could still exist. But what happens? And I, you know, the more I looked into this, I thought this makes sense. In antiquity, uh, you can imagine that the first followers of Jesus would have instantly uh, made sacred shrines of any of the places. I mean, the, the house where he grew up, the, the house where his mother grew up, the house where Peter lived in Capernaum. The house, I mean, these places, the, the place where Jesus was born in Bethlehem, this was all within living memory. I mean, this was, you know, while this persecution's going on, they, they consider these places really holy. And that memory survived. In fact, the Romans tried to crush it, tried to wipe these places out. They would build temples of Roman pagan temples over these sacred sites. So by building a a Roman pagan temple to desecrate the holy site, they were inadvertently preserving it and marking it and saying, yeah, this is the spot. This is where Jesus was born. This is where Jesus was, was buried. This is where, you know. So in Nazareth, uh, in 1880, some nuns, some French nuns, moved to Nazareth uh, from France to build a convent in Nazareth. They're the Sisters of Jesus or the Sisters of Nazareth. They... They, they built a convent and the spot they picked, they were doing some excavation and they came upon what looked like an ancient church. Um, long story short, in 2006, 
an archaeologist, uh, an English archaeologist, University of uh, Reading, um, starts an actual excavation, so tremendously recently, and doesn't publish on it until a few months ago, the fall of 2020, a year ago, publishes a book with all the findings. What did they find? They found a church. They found another church on top of the church. Now, why would people in the fourth century, in the sixth century, why would they build huge churches in a place like Nazareth? Well, traditionally, they would build them over a sacred site. In the 700s, in the eighth century, the Muslims took over that area and destroyed these churches. So there's no record. 13 centuries pass, or, or 12 centuries pass, before these women build this convent, and then another 150 years before uh, somebody very recently d digs in it. So they find a, a Byzantine-era church, they find a Crusader-era church, and what do they find beneath these two churches? A first-century dwelling in Nazareth. Um, there's a memory. Uh, I mean, I write about the details in the book. I hope people will, you know, dig into it. But there's no question that the reason these huge churches were built too over this spot was to mark it as a sacred site, and that the the, the Muslims destroyed uh, these churches, and people forgot about it until they happened to be discovered in 1880 by these nuns, and it kind of carried along in fits and starts until it's finally excavated. But it's literally not until one year ago, even less, that the publication comes out. And the publication almost seems ashamed. And so they talk about Byzantine and Crusader era churches. Whatever. You feel like saying, hey, hey, you're describing boxes. Tell me what's in the box, like a diamond. Why aren't you describing? The only reason the boxes exist, the only reason these churches exist is to cover and to preserve what's at the bottom, which is this first century home in Nazareth. Anyway, it's it's crazy. It's hard to believe. It's like saying, you know, they just discovered a Noah's Ark and then uh, uh, and then the next week they discovered, uh, you know, Santa's workshop at the North Pole. No kidding. Let's 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 look at it. I mean, it doesn't seem possible. <laughs> and they, the to, to, just so occur, we have not found Noah's Ark or Santa's workshop yet. Right. Not that I know of. No, that's your follow up book. Right. Is the search yeah, for Santa. It's just yeah. it, it's <laughs> But it, it's it's so great. When I looked into this, I thought to myself, how do I, Eric Metaxas, get to write about this? How is it that I'm writing about this and that nobody knows about this? It just happened to be that I was looking into recent biblical archaeology a year in, ago when I was writing this book. And I came upon this and I said, I, am I dreaming? This, this is like the greatest news ever. This is man lands on moon news. I mean, if they've discovered the home of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph... How does it get bigger than that? I, I cannot even believe I'm saying this to you, but uh, you know something was published on it in biblical archaeology about five years ago, and then pff, nothing. Uh, the book was published more recently, but it's it's comedy. This is comedy. I want the world to know all this stuff. This is and, this and is your book is filled with this. These, I mean, I I've uh, like I said, I've you know spent hours poring over another Metaxas tome this morning, and. Folks, there are story. There are just these are two stories that I just kind of stuck out to me that I found fascinating. But uh, you did your you did your homework. How long did it take you to write this one? Hours, many many hours. Oh, okay, so uh, like three, four. It's yeah, like so. a long weekend. You know, my staff works on it. I just kind of sign off on it. That's right. You just kind of kind of head in there. Actually, also, the funny thing is, I don't I don't use researchers. The only time I've ever had help is on my book Seven Men and Seven Women. All my other books, I write every syllable, every I do all the research. I I can't really work yeah. with others. I just have to do it myself. But it is, it's a huge labor. I mean, it's, I, I don't even know. I never keep track of how long, but it's, I want it to be right. I don't want anybody to say, oh, we found, you know, this error, that error. I want to find errors in other people's books. I don't want people to find errors in my book. So I'm very careful. And I think, you know, that's important. I care. Last question as archaeology here. Is it, I'm curious for those who might study this, because this is just the, the claims you're making in this and just reporting on, I mean, these are astounding would you say that uh, has any of these discoveries moved the needle as far as I don't know if you, you know, you strike me as someone who has multiple friends who are biblical archaeologists, but I'm curious, are they overwhelmingly people of faith then? Or I would wonder in that field, if you're studying, if that would lead you to 
if you've met I, many or uh, in this the research? That is, I, I honestly don't know. Uh, the two that I do know uh, are uh, men of faith, but uh, I, I don't I don't know uh, that many that I can comment on that. It's, it's interesting because you think if you're, you know, it, you're studying whether you, whether you go into archaeology, probably because you have an interest in faith, period. But if the Bible is seemingly always being used as the main go-to, like, starter to go find all this stuff, at what point will enough discoveries be made that we go, this book is at least somewhat historically accurate? That, and We're already at that point. If you deny it at this point, you're just sticking your head in the sand. I'm sorry, but that that's a fact. Yeah. Uh, people need to be shaken up. This is the most the, the the discovery of biblical Sodom, the details, what they write about in nature, which, as I said, the, my article in Newsweek touches on it. But the chapter in the book gives you more uh, more details. And I just interviewed uh, the archaeologist on my program uh, yesterday, wow. I guess. It's very important that we understand that our faith is rational. And I can tell you this much. Atheism is irrational. Now, again, you can't prove Christianity. But don't tell me it's not rational uh, and don't tell me atheism is rational based on what we know from science and from other things that I talk about in the end of the book. I, I think you have to retire atheism uh, and you have to move to agnosticism if you want to be intellectually uh, uh, fulfilled. Amazing. Well, give us one last look at the book so we can encourage everyone to uh, go well, check it out. I is, uh, There you go. Is Atheism Dead by Eric Metax? Is that a snake uh and can you give us a little what's the commentary on the cover there it's a snake swallowing its own tail uh and i think it's kind of that that's the glyph that's the kind of idea is that bad ideas consume themselves eventually they can't sustain themselves so a snake swallowing its own tail that concept comes up a few times in the book so i don't want to give it away but uh you'll see oh yeah well all right well eric metaxas thank you people please go to my website where you can pre-order the book we need people to pre-order it. I'm begging you. Uh, there are great prices. Really, it's 45% off the hardcover, which is like unheard of. So please take advantage of it uh, and check it out. Thank so you. So we're going to ericmetaxas.com, right? Please. That's right. We'll send everybody there. So anyways, folks, you've been listening to Kind of Christian with Eric Metaxas, who is anything but kind of Christian. So uh, Eric, thank you so much for being here uh, and all the research you've done. And I hope you'll come back and see us soon. I would, I'd love to. It's fun talking to you, and I'm sorry I have to run, but uh, I do. But we'll, we'll talk again, Ryan. God bless you, man. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much. Folks, we'll talk to you soon. God bless, everybody.